Welcome to Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. Hits Canine Training Conference. This is America's premier canine training seminar packed to the brim with the world's best instructors and me and Eric. All covering important topics. There's no better place to learn and no better place to network with other handlers, breeders, and trainers. HITS 2022 is being held in Orlando, Florida this year, August 16th through the 19th. And I know how you guys are. Everybody waits the last minute. And in the post-Rona world, everybody's training budgets are being cut and everybody's deciding whether they're going to be able to get to go or not. So don't wait because they're not going to have an infinite number of spots and the price goes up after a certain date. So get signed up as soon as possible. It's in Orlando. We'll see you there. Be sure to hit them up. Hits K9, letter K number nine dot net. One of the best relationships we have in this podcast and in this industry is with the great people down at Kinetic Dog Food. The story of Kinetic uh, Performance Dog Food is pretty simple. They wanted to make a better premium dog food for the dogs that need it the most. Their goal is to give every working and sporting dog a higher energy level better performance, and better overall health through superior nutrition. So they formulated a line of food based on what they considered to be the optimal profile of a performing of performance dog. They've done tons of research on this. This isn't their first rodeo. These guys know what they're doing. If you're a kennel, they will come to your kennel. They will see the problems that you have. They will check out what works for the dogs that you have. Um, they're amazing people to work with. They drop ship a pallet right to you if you want. Um, I know a lot of guys that use them. There's a bunch of different formulas on there. And uh, 32K might not be for your dogs. Maybe the 26K works. They can adjust it. They'll give you the right ideas what to do in different parts of the year. Winter's different than summer. It's uh, it's really a well-run, good dog food um, company kineticdogfood.com. Be sure to check them out on social media too, man. They're they're amazing folks. Kineticdogfood.com. By now, you've probably all heard my story at least once. I'm usually getting tagged by dogs or hurting myself. So this next product is like near and dear to me because I actually use it. Uh quick turn by vet care. It does great for keeping small things from turning into big ones. I use it at the kennel for uh, clients' dogs that have some issues with skin stuff or have food allergies or have environmental allergies. Works great. Keeps hot spots from making giant hot spots. And it keeps my working dogs who inevitably find magnificent ways to hurt themselves from turning it into a giant vet visit. Stops little issues from becoming big ones. So it comes in a spray, comes in an ointment, comes in a dressing. It's great for creating a protective barrier and promoting wound healing. You really only have to use it like once a day. So there's no reason not to have it in the vehicle. Since it's temperature stable, you don't got to worry about it getting hot, getting cold or anything like that. So put it in your first aid kit or put it in your cabinet. Vetcare.us on the internet. Quick Derm by Vetcare on the inter- on Instagram and on Facebook. And then hit them up with the discount code 10WDR for 10% off your first order. So my entire time that I was a handler or a trainer in law enforcement, the cars at my department in the departments that I trained all had American aluminum accessory kennels in the cars, different cars, man, Dodge chargers, all Ford models, some Chevys, uh, SUVs, cars, everything. We loved American aluminum accessories. Um, it's a great product, a great company. They've been serving uh canine law enforcement community for over 20 years, you check out their uh, website, EZ, that's the letter Z, EZRiderOnline.com. They got testimonials. They got videos on how to. They got a list of everything they have. Uh, just today, we made a post on the Working Dog Radio social media showing a 
dog that survived a really bad crash because of the American aluminum kennel in the back of the car. Check them out online, guys. EasyRiderOnline.com. Just let them do their thing, man. Whatever car you got for your work, your patrol car, get a hold of them, American Aluminum Accessories, and get the best in the business. Next up comes uh, training courses online from our friends down at Highland Canine Training, Jason and Aaron Ferguson. So in the post-Rona world, uh, training budgets have been getting cut. People aren't going to be able to travel, whether it be instructors or they be canine handlers and supervisors going somewhere else for training. So Highland has announced a lot of online training courses. One of those that sticks out to me is their police supervisor canine course. And it's no secret that one of the problems with canine tends to be some of the supervision issues. This course is specifically designed for administrators and covers utilization as well as liability and FLSA issues. The course can be taken at your convenience and you'll receive a certificate of completion at the end. When you go to Tactical Police Canine Training, that's letter K number nine, training.com and use the discount code WDR30, you'll get 30% off of that course. All right, everybody, Working Dog Radio, Broadcasting the Bite. We are back with another great episode. Uh, I am Eric Stambro from Canton, Ohio. With me, as always, from Tulsa, Oklahoma, is Ted Summers. Ted, what's going on over there? Uh, not a lot. We're closing in on Christmas um, and the end of the year, finally. So I'm ready for 2022 to start. I think I'm just ready for 2021 to be over. I don't really give a shit about 2022 right now. So, uh, yeah, my stuff is kicked into high gear at the kennel. Like we're jam packed with pets. We started doing a program where we're doing a, uh, like we're not babysitting, but we're doing like a brush up program a week for over Thanksgiving and over Christmas for people. And like, we advertise that and it just like the email box the next morning was like, Oh my God, I got a book. I'm like, Oh shit, here we go. <laughs> so it's keeping everybody busy. Um, and getting some dogs uh shipped in um to do some police dog stuff a couple single purpose and a duel and yeah other than that um finishing up a bunch of stuff at the kennel there i'm uh, gonna start putting drywall up next week so that'll be fun um but outside of that same old same old how about you uh so today we're recording this is december 13th um the last dog, I sold all the dogs out of my kennel. Last one, I have Scooby. He leaves tomorrow to uh, Dayton, Ohio Police Department. Um, be the second dog I have there. <clears throat> and then Wednesday, m- my wife and I and my daughter are going to Florida for vacation. She's home from college. So we're going to take her on a little trip, do a week, come back, and then reload the kennel and get ready. I, I think I'll probably sell like about 10 dogs in January. So uh, I've had a lot of departments reach out. So I probably have a handler school starting sometime in the January. So I got to get ready for that. Um, I have <clears throat> in January, I have Cameron Ford coming up to do a cognition seminar and then the Oda oh, Pace nice. seminar. The cognition seminar, I only opened it to search and rescue people because I have a ton of search and rescue folks that come and use the fun house. And um, I help them out with some things here and there. Um, but I opened it only to search and rescue people and a couple of my employees and I sold it in one day, uh, sold the whole thing out in one day. Um, and then the, the odor pays is only LE and I kept that real small. That's going to be a kind of a small group of guys so they can get a lot of reps and learn a lot of stuff. So that'll be pretty cool. That'll be cool. Uh, we need to, yeah. 
Cameron, uh, we need to do him again and talk about some of that stuff so he can tell us, so he can tell me how stupid my dog is. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Why, one... When he was talking about that, it's like, you can tell how smart a dog is. And I'm like, I know, I've seen some dumb ones, but yeah. <laughs> like... the, uh, the one of my employees, I'm going to have her get certified as a cognition like evaluator so we can have, you know, just civilians and people with, um, pet dogs come in and learn all that stuff it, it'll be pretty fun i think that <clears throat> the cognition thing is going to be at the pet facility and the um odor pays will be at the fun house so um but that's about it so we're going to be reloading this scooby dog that i have that leaves tomorrow dude i really like him like one of the better ones i i, I get a lot of great dogs but i really like this dog um He's very clear-headed, works hard, good biter, great on the odor, um, and gets the zoomies like a pet dog. So it's kind of funny at the kennel to see this Malinois flying around in circles around me in the uh, out in the grass. It's pretty. It's actually pretty fun. So, um, but anyways, what's what do we got going on tonight? Well, tonight, uh, before we started recording, I was talking with our guest about how we have like this short list and, and he's always been on one and like getting nailing people down has been like almost impossible for this thing. And it's not like we're in the same room. Um, and it's always like aligning ducks up in a row because we have other people involved in the podcast and everything else. So um, our guest tonight um, is been in canine for longer than I've been alive, I think. Uh, so... Didn't want my clicky keyboard making noise over you guys while you're talking. Sorry about oh, that. Yeah, I'm doing well. How about yourself? We're doing great, man. Um, I was reading through your bio and I was like, oh, I'm going to read this. And I'm like, no, nah, I want to forget something. So <laughs> we were talking a little bit of your background. Um, you know, you gave me a little bit of your story before we started recording. So let's start there and talk about how uh, you ended up retiring from uh, Seattle PD and in there. Um, I've been in dogs all my life. You know, it, it, um, we always had a dog as as part of the family. And then, uh, even as a kid, when I was living in New York city, uh, I made money while other kids were doing it other ways with, you know, babysitting and odd jobs here and there. There aren't many lawns to mow in New York city. I'm just going to tell you. Mm -hmm. So, um, I wound up walking people's dogs. So from the age of 12 on, um, I made money that way for, you know, all the way through high school. Um, and then I had a couple other jobs and then I came out to Seattle because I fell in love with the place when I came out to visit my grandparents in the summers, and um, quickly found out that college was not for me at that time, or I wasn't ready for college. And a bunch of Seattle police officers took this young knucklehead under their wing and said, you need to grow up. <laughs> and four years of polite penal servitude with Uncle Sam would probably do you some good. You could try on this, this copping thing and see if you like it. And uh, so I got a guarantee for military police when I enlisted. And I was lucky enough that um, at MP school at Fort Gordon, they offered slots for people who wanted to go to Lackland for dog school. So I trundled off to Lackland and patrol school, promptly got my hand mauled by um, what looked like a little coyote at the time. But now I know it was probably a Malinois, <laughs> that sneaky little so-and-so. <laughs> and he just, he just turned my hand into the Goodyear blimp one day on the drill pad while we we're teaching him down. And, um, and that was the moment where I said to myself, there's got to be a better way. But I finished up, did really well in my school, got a promotion out of it, got reported to my first duty station 
as an E4 with eight, eight months in service. <laughs> and they didn't know what to do with me. I didn't know my, my ass from a hole in the ground. I was really, if you'll pardon my language, I was dumber than a sack of hammers. And I um, got schooled really quickly on, on how to do the job. And it was really great. I'd had enough exposure to the Seattle dogs. I knew that there was more that could be done than what the army taught us. Because Seattle was a tracking centric agency. And I got to see that firsthand. And, um, but I, you know, I loved it, um, got out, um, worked in private security till I found myself a civilian law enforcement job, but it was an agency too small to have a dog program, um, shifted from there. And I was a County deputy over in Kitsap County, uh, which is in Bremerton, Washington, and that area where they have the Trident submarine base, one of the first one, the first Trident submarine base on the West coast. So it was a very fast growing County. And that was in the 1980s. And we were running dogs Huckley Buck. And in fact, up here at that time, most tracking was done off lead. So you were at a dead sprint behind your dog and you better have a good down because he was going to get out of sight. Ooh. And then after that, I left, uh, I left there and went to Seattle. Within a couple of years, I was brought into the unit in Seattle. And I've been in and out of the unit um, since I got there. I've had three assignments to the unit with good assignments in between um, in getting promoted and stuff like that and being a project manager for the chief's office. So I got enough of that. I got enough of a look at what happens up on the eighth floor of headquarters to realize I didn't want to be there. I never had any aspirations any higher than being the training supervisor for the unit. I didn't even want to really run the unit, although I had to a, more than a couple of times. I just wanted to help people train dogs. And, um, you know, some people are dog people because they're not so much people people. Guilty. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> I understand that. So, um, you're now, how long have you been retired? You spent, so we, you spent October overall, 15th, October 15th. There you go. Eric clapping. Eric, where, how, what, what number are you on now? Like, what are three you years. Like, three, year, three years out? Yeah. Yep. I retired. I'm not even three months, bro. I'm still trying to get my head wrapped around it. Yeah. I, uh, retired November of 2018. Yeah, it's right after we started. Right after we started the podcast, that's been God yeah. dang, that's been a minute. That uh, that episode is still one of our most downloaded episodes. Um, ironically enough, so um, now that we're retired, um, you have some. We're going to talk about some of that other stuff, some of the projects you got going on, like after the fact. So while you were in, um, talk a little bit about your first um, dog when you were at Lackland, if you can remember his name, Astro. And, uh, <laughs> Sometimes we have guys on and they can't remember shit. So I talk about Astro. <laughs> so this is the old, old school day. So we're going through, we're going through the basic thing. You know, the first week you get there, you don't have a dog. You're, you're praising a, a, an ammo can full of rocks or a bucket full of rocks. You're learning how to do leash corrections by busting a chain, you know, busting on a chain link fence. They give you all those mechanical skills. They teach you how to praise. And, they, and by the way, I don't know. Is this either of you guys, former military people, military mm -hmm. handlers, no, no, no Lackland experience mm -hmm. because they literally made us say, had a good boy, had a good dog, had a good baby. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you can get away with that with some dogs, but by the time you get that stuff out of your mouth, a Malinois is going to be like three or four behaviors down line. And he's not knowing what you're praising. He's just like, whatever gets paid at the end of that whole thing is what I'm going to do next. <clears throat> and it was, it was kind of, it was kind of tough. And so after that first week of this stuff, they, you know, in that first week, then they introduced us to our dogs 
And it's like everybody marches in line into the kennels. And then they everybody says, you just, at the last person in, you stop at the first kennel. Next last person, you stop at the second kennel. Everybody stop in front of a kennel, left face, meet your dog. And there he was. Yes. This little orange coyote looking thing. Now, I've been looking for Rin Tin Tin. And what do these people give me? This orange little coyote looking thing with a dark face. Now, I didn't realize at the time that that was probably one of their early forays into the world of Malinois because he was tiny and a lot smaller than the Malinois we have now. What's that, what year was this? 75, 1975. Yeah. Yeah, that's way early. <laughs> on, yeah. on Malinois. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He really doesn't look like the typical Malinois, I'll tell you, because his face was orange too. He didn't really have the the dark muzzle. He was he was a little strange. But so I get there, I see this dog and he's in there and he's like cocking his head, looking at me like, what is up with you? And I'm trying to talk nice and baby talk like all the dogs that I walked when I was a kid in New York and everything's like fine. And then I look at him and he starts walking around the kennel and just pacing. And he's like, and I said, oh, poor dog. He must be hurt because he's like all yeah. stiff and everything. <laughs> not loose. His legs aren't loose and flowing. And I'm like, he must, he must be in pain. So then they tell us, go in and meet your dog. So I go in and meet my dog. And he immediately comes up and sniffs me and then immediately starts to pace in a circle. Now, if I don't know if you've ever been in the kennels in Lackland, but their, their dog houses are raised up off of the ground by about 16 inches uh, so that they can, they can, they're easy to clean. You can jump a dog out hose that thing out, it's all concrete. So I decide to sit in the kennel door and then just let him move around. And he'd come by and he'd circle around me. And, the, and then like the second circle, and I didn't know at the time, because this is 1975 and it was before the movie. And I didn't understand the music, the soundtrack that was going on that. Jaws, yeah. So like, I'm like, I'm sitting there, I'm not aware what's going on. He's walking around. And about the second lap, he stops and he comes by and he comes up right at my leg as I'm sitting there. And he puts his chin on my leg. And I go, oh, what a nice dog. He wants some love. I go to pet him. Boom, head is off. And he's doing that stiff walk around again. Next time around, he comes back like that. And he puts that down. I said, well, I'm learned. I'm smart. I know. I know I'm not supposed to pet him because he just told me that. So I don't pet him. And at that point, he says, okay. And he puts, after he puts his head right here, then he puts one paw on my leg. And I'm like, oh, what a nice dog. I go to pet him. Boom, he's off circling again. So I said, okay. So he comes around a couple more laps. And then he comes back. And finally, the third time he comes by, he doesn't bother with the chin. He just puts the paw up, then the other up. And then his head is right here next to mine. And all of a sudden, I just hear this. And I don't know who took control of my hands because it wasn't my brain. But all of a sudden, my hand was on his chest and I just launched him across the kennel. He's bouncing off the chain link just as I'm getting out the gate. He comes back at the door and he's like chewing at the chain link. And I'm like. This is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Mm -hmm. And um, so we go through this and we're getting along and, you know, petting and praise. We're all we're giving them no toys, no treats, no nothing. Leash corrections, petting and praise. 
And everything was fine until a few weeks later, we're doing the down. And this is Texas. <laughs> oh, yeah. In June, on an asphalt oh, drill yeah. pad. And they say, okay, everybody ready? It's time for you to down your dog. And they teach us, take that choke chain, because every dog got a 22-inch choke chain. Didn't matter if it had a 16-inch neck, it was getting a 22-inch choke chain. And snug it up right up against the back of his head. And then you're going to hold on to that chain or the swivel snap of your lead or the leather on your lead right up there and keep that tight. And on my instruction, down your dog, you will forcefully drive your hand forward and slightly to the right so that when your dog is beside you, he will drop into a down position. Okay. Your hand will drop into his open mouth. Nice. So I <laughs> snug up that chain, kind of wipe the sweat off of my hands because it's hot, slide him up, and the time comes to push him down. And he says, down your dog. And I shove that dog down. And what's the first thing that happens? He begins to have what looks like an epileptic seizure. He's flopping around like a fish, like a carp out of water. And all of a sudden, I feel that chain sliding through my hands because it's hot. I'm sweaty. And my adrenal system maybe had something to do with it. Next thing you know, just a little bit. And then I slide out and I say, uh-oh. I start to feel his his hands or his, his mouth against my, like I could feel him right at the weapon. I said, I got to get out of here. So I did what they taught us to do. I grabbed the double stitching on that thing, picked him up and I hung him. I said, no, no, no. At which point, because I'm an army guy going through a base on, on an air force base, going through training on an air force base, the air force instructors all in unison with one voice said, why you army? What kind of mountain? What are you? You can't do that. And you know, what is wrong with you? Keep that dog down. Don't be a candy ass. Well, okay. Next time around, we do the same thing. Rinse and repeat. He does the same thing. This time I do the, they tell me once I got him up after they got done yelling at me, they said, now start moving around. So I, they had me to hold him up and move around the circle then put him down. All right. So then the third time, and they were yelling at me, don't you dare let go of that dog. You hold him down. So the third time they said, down your dogs. I said, I'm going to keep my hand here no matter what. That lead, that, that chain just slipped through there. And he got a hold of my hand. And I go, ow, that hurts. Damn, that hurts. <laughs> and I'm lifting up. And then I say, I pick him up. And they start to go, why you army? Oh, look at the blood. Because I was like blood going all over the place the dog is thrashing on me finally let's go i and i i airplane him at that point i drop him down and they trundle me off well we had oiled our leads that that morning so they had all sorts of nice neat's foot oil on them and they got that texas dirt got all in that nice puncture room and my hands swelled up like a like like i said looked like the goodyear blimp after that was done and Excellent. put me back two weeks and uh, that means I was out of that class and I had to pick up another rotation. So I go back out on another rotation. They take that dog. They put him with another handler who was in that class whose dog wasn't working out for uh, workability issues other than that. And they said, ah, you know, take Astro. He's tough, but you're bigger and stronger and white. You can take him. And this dude was beefy, man. He had arms everybody wishes they had. And that was, he had those until the day he took the dog to the vet and he went to pick him up on to the table and put him on the table. And the dog bit right through Ooh. his bicep. <laughs> they could literally take a, a swab and push it in one hole and out the other. Uh, nah. It was bad. It was bad. And um, 
So then they pushed that dog out. They put him in patrol. Uh, they took him out of patrol dog school and put him in sentry school. And do you know the difference between patrol dog and sentry school? No, no. Sentry dogs have no out. They just oh. choke them off. Yeah, <laughs> they oh. just go up, choke a dog <laughs> off, and that's it. That's end of story. And so um, I thought that was going to be the end of it until one day I'm at the post bowling alley and I see some poor Marine with a bandage around his neck. And I said, what happened to you? And he said, Astro. No. <laughs> three for three. <laughs> three he said, but at least, and then we, we bought a pitcher of beer. We had a pitcher of beer together. And he says, but at least I'm not going to have to ship out with that little mother. Right. Mm -hmm. And what happens? That dog winds up shipping. The, the, so while he was out, he certified with another dog. They certified Astro and they sent the two of them to Morocco together. Oh. I have no idea. I have no idea what happened. Some but, say he's still there. Right. Yeah. yeah. I don't he's know. the mayor of Morocco. <laughs> but that dog, but you got to realize I was doing what I was told at that time. I didn't know any better. I thought this is the way it had to be. And so that dog was the, was the moment that first time he bit me as I'm walking back to get my hand treated, I said, there's gotta be a better way. And so I just, it put me on a mission from that point forward to learn as much as I could. And I've never, I've, I haven't finished it yet because there's always new knowledge coming out and I'm always getting, there's always a dog that humbles me. Every time I think I got something dialed in, some little monster comes along and he just wipes out your training plan. And um, tr training plans are like battle plans. They only survive first contact with the enemy. I, I mean, dog. Right. So you just got to realize that and, and be flexible. So you so could, you that, should, that's kind of, you should call any started. mistake like that where the dog just throws a wrench in it. Yeah. He pulled an Astro. Um, <laughs> I don't know what to say. He's, he just well, did an Astro. You, you ask any of the handlers that work with me and when they are having a problem with their dog, uh, they all, they all go, it's just information. Cause my mantra is, Unexpected outcomes are information. All outcomes are information. One outcome is, is okay, you've asked. If it works out the way you thought it would, that means you've asked that dog something you prepared it to deliver. If it works out that the dog does something you didn't expect and maybe that you don't like, that is because you've asked the dog to deliver something that you haven't prepared it to deliver. You may think you have, but he just gave you the evidence that you've got more training to do. Yeah, we always say that dogs don't lie. That no. and then... There, how many times have you heard somebody say, I've never seen him do that before? I'm like, that's the saying in canine. He's yeah, never done what? that before. Yeah, it's funny you say that. that about Astro and, and how that worked out. Because so uh, today's episode, the, the episode that came out today on the 13th is with uh, Steve Stoops, who's a yeah. um, you know, know trainer over in, in the uh, DOD. And he said one of his big things is he doesn't believe that it should be a rite of passage for um, guys getting bit by their own dogs absent a special event, you know, some misdirected uh, aggression or whatever, but it used to be the thing forever mm -hmm. was you, you should expect to get tagged numerous times by your own dog. Yep. And, uh, and listen, I had dogs in my unit um, that ended up like that. Um, but, it is not something that you're owed that you owe to the group by getting smoked by the dog that all the time, like it's always sketchy. Nobody, nobody wants that anymore. Dude, how many yeah. handlers do you know that are at war with their dogs and they don't even know it? 
<laughs> all of them. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a cold. It starts out as a cold war. It starts out <laughs> as a cold war. It's not a hot shooting war yet. Yeah. But it's it's like this dog is always testing, always and like, what's the like my my test every time I go come in and I do problem solving, like at another agency or a seminar, anything like that. Test with a handler. Simple thing. Send your dog out on that guy over there. Doesn't care whether he's in a suit or a sleeve. And watch him on his, on his bike. And you see these dogs go out there. They hit the sleeve. Yeah. They hit the suit. They love it. They're solid. Everything's great. And then what happens? I say, okay, now, I just want you to quietly walk up to your dog. Mm-hmm. At which point you see the dance. The dance yep. in which that dog physically jerks that quarry around, that decoy around, and interposes him in between himself and the handler. And they try and dance around and all this stuff. And I said, you are at war with your dog and you didn't even know it. You got to rebuild that. You got to rebuild that bond of trust. He's got to believe that when you approach, it means the cavalry's coming. Not that, you know. Not like the scene in Braveheart. His, 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 his <laughs> tail kicked in by you. Yeah. No, we see that a lot. That or I see the other side where the dog is afraid to do something and the handler is afraid to correct him. They just kind of stand there and look at each other. I'm like, well, why don't you two do something? Yeah. <laughs> like, either take him off or do this or do that. And they're like, well, he's going to bite me. And the hand, and the dog's like, well, I'm not going to do that because he's going to correct me. I'm like, oh, God bless. <laughs> like, yeah. Come on. Wait, so, well, see, but see, that's the insidious thing about aversives. I don't care whether it's a leash correction, e-collar, whatever. Just understand that if if at some point, if you're not careful, um it gets to the point where the safest thing and e-collar leash or getting yelled at by your supervisor or whatever, the safest thing to do is nothing. You know, you asked me how, how things are in Seattle, you know, right now. And I'll tell you that for a few years, we've had a patrol force in that city that is in a state of learned helplessness. You know, have you ever seen those studies that Murray Sidman has done and things like that? where they could take a rat and put oh, yeah. him in a cage yeah. and they electrify every inch of that cage, except one corner. And then they put food and water on the other side. Well, it, you know, that rat knows the food's there, knows the water's there, but he knows he can't go across that cage without getting shocked. And so that rat will stay there until he starves. Do you know that if after a while you can turn the electricity off and a rat he still won't, won't go over yep. the water, still won't go oh, over yeah. the food. You can remove the contingency, but in the animal's mind, the contingency is not there. And so the safest thing to do is nothing. Yeah. And I mean, that's why people, that's how, that's why certain people leave collars on and like dogs get collar wise. And I mean, like, it's always, it's always an ever present cloud. Like it's always around. It yeah. seems like, and like, I can see it. Like Eric just sent me a comment. You know, like we ask that all the time. Like whose dog does the, who's, whose dog does the dance that you're talking about? And th- half people don't want well, more than more than half, but we're like, who does that? most and of them? Yeah. Well, and there, nobody will answer me because I don't know, or Eric, nobody will answer us. And they're like, we don't know what you're talking about. And <laughs> they're like, yeah, we're about to find out, aren't we? Yeah. And there's a couple of scenarios where I'm like, stop fighting with him and like, let him do this and you do that. And so it's, it's, uh, it's interesting you say that um, because, you know, it's one of those things where, um, you know, I've heard of the story that uh, of you dealing with some guys that were trying to do a call off and they, the old school way is you put them on a pinch and you put the handler, you put the decoy at 78 yards and the, the fucking 
pinch line is 75 yards long. You let the dog just smash into the end of the pinch line the entire time. They're like, oh yeah, he won't have a recall. I'm like, come on. (laughs) He doesn't understand. Like, it's not that he won't. It's just, I mean. (laughs) You're asking something you haven't prepared him to deliver. And he's got a wide. And then eventually you do this. Like I've only seen a few dogs that will just continue to run until they hit the end of that line. Eventually most dogs will go, no, I'm not going. You're lying to me. Yeah. They wouldn't even go five feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, they won't. They, they won't go. They're just going to sit there and, you know, like they're going to look at you like, why should I believe you? And the whole point of training is to get the, to build up a trust account with that dog where he actually believes you. When you say, if you let go of that guy, I'll make it worth your while. If you stop before you get to him, I'll really make it worth your while. If you go ahead, if I tell you to take him, I'll, it will be worth your while. I promise. But because we wind up unwittingly lying to our dogs all the time, eventually they go, eh, I'm going to go ahead and do what I want because I can't trust you to pay me. Wives do this. Wives know oh, this yeah. dance with their husbands all the time. Right. right? Yeah. So, um, you know, you get out of the military and you then end up in law enforcement and you go to Seattle PD and you made a comment earlier about them being fairly tracking intensive, which is kind of a surprise. I think it'll be a surprise to a lot of people. One that's listening to this that, I mean, everybody knows where Seattle's at, but it's a large city, you know, and they're not a large, not a lot of large cities do a lot of tracking. Um, in fact, I know guys in large cities and they're like, we don't track. We got a perimeter set. We just throw the dog over a fence. <laughs> make announcements yeah. of defense and like we just do area search to area search i'm like eh, i mean it kind of works you know what i mean and if it works if you got manpower great whatever that's how they do it but um so hey, you just had gwinnett county talking about their yeah. their tracking yep and yeah and they're they're super successful and they got lots so. of urban area yeah. yes they do yes they got they lots do. of woods they got lots of urban area too i mean right. that's that's a mixed bag mixed bag there so, you know, where this is leading is to one of the reasons that, that we're having you on is to talk about the hit tracking. Um, but talk a little bit about your exposure to the tracking in the early days at um, SPD and then kind of the foundation of how you started to do this tracking, the way, this method that we're going to talk about here in a little bit. Well, in the old days, um, we only worked nights. We only had one shift. And if we ever did anything on days, it was on call out and they didn't call us out much because dogs can't track during the day and they can't track in the city and they can't track with all this stuff. And, but we were, so we only work nights and we'd start new dogs out at the cemeteries because the cemeteries liked having us there because it get the vandals out and cemeteries are perfect tracking grounds. I mean, the grass is manicured. It is smooth and flat. And in a Seattle, uh, you know, on a, on a, on a, on a spring or fall evening, you can see in the dew, the footsteps, you know exactly where this guy went. And they've got built-in tracking stakes, you know, go three headstones, take a left, four headstones, take a right, hide behind a monument. Well, the problem with that was, and it was all done, what we call boogie tracks, where somebody would have a toy or something like that, even before the dog really under his sleeve, they'd run off and um, tease them up with that, go up and hide somewhere behind a monument or a bush or a tree and they'd go find them. And uh, a couple things happened. Some dogs um, figured it out and they would follow the track and they would be pretty good. They get out there and then you could take them out into the residential neighborhoods where there were grass in the yards and grass on the planting strips along the sidewalks. And it worked out pretty well. In fact, we used to, once we got those dogs doing that, uh, we'd 
acclimate them to those environments by having people start walking only on the planning strip instead of the sidewalk. And then we go one foot on, one foot off. Then we kind of amble in and out of the grass and the vegetation. Then eventually we're all on, on the sidewalk. Um, and that was great for those dogs. But then there are a bunch of dogs that pretty soon figured out, dude is always behind something big enough to hide one of those hairless monkeys. So I'm just going to check behind everyone. And we, yep. those dogs became bush hunters. They didn't care about tracking. They would just run around like, you know, with their heads on a swivel, look behind anything big enough to hide a person. Um, they were really tough to get back. Once they once a dog has figured out he can do it with his eyes or he can do it with his head up, it's really, it's, it's tough to get a dog to really focus on the ground. Um, that's why we don't teach building search or area search until the tracking is really solid. And then we just hit it sporadically because every time we do building search or area search for, you know, a couple of reps and bring them back to track, uh, you got to get the dogs, you know, especially the young dogs, you got to get their head back into the game. They don't switch gears that quickly early on. But after we had some success with that and we were pretty good, I mean, we were, Seattle was even before I got there was floating around 30, 35% success rate. And a success is defined either you come up with a bad guy or you come up with evidence that will be used in the case that's collectible evidence that's going to be something the bad guy stole or article closing because I don't know about you guys, but our guys were layers, layers upon layers, and they peel as they run. And then, uh, or you get some corroboration that says, yes, this, this is the person. Either they've stopped somebody and you got a witness that IDs them, or you track to a dry spot in the pavement and the, you know, somebody opens up their window and say, you're looking for the guys that just ran to that car and took off? <laughs> yeah, we probably are. Yeah, well, it was a white Chevy. They went that way. Okay. If you get that, we will claim that as a success because our our uh, our criteria was can you reasonably can you reasonably be expected to testify about this if this case goes to court? And because our dogs are used to link a person from the point last seen, which is probably the crime scene or someplace close to there in their immediate flight, to where you find them hiding under somebody's backyard, you know, in their backyard underneath their deck, your dog can you can help contribute to the probable cause that links them together at that point. Um, so that was our bread and butter. And Seattle's was a tracking centric agency at that time. The 80 back when uh, Eric, were you around when the lawsuits, the ACLU was suing everybody under the sun back in the, in the 1990s, uh, particularly in the West coast. Yeah. I, I got hired at the PD in 96. Yeah. So that I was, was in a bunch of small little departments before that. So that's the tail end of it. And uh, the lawsuit started in California and we were in contact with um, a couple of the sergeants down there who were kind of letting us know what's going on. And um, about a year or two after LA started that process, it started with us up in Seattle. And it makes sense because basically um, the ACLU was had the playbook and was explaining how the, these lawsuits should be prosecuted or a couple of attorney law firms in the Southern California area, area that literally had phone numbers dedicated for people to call and complain and join a, join a class action. Um, and the playbook was simple. Come into the area, find the biggest patrol dog agency you can, because that's likely where you have the largest pool of potential plaintiffs. The bigger your pool of potential plaintiffs, the more money you're going to make. So Seattle was their number one target. Um, now, I'm, I'm 
pleased to say that we went through the process lasted six years from, um, you know, from like late 1991 into late 19, um, well, late 1996. So we're looking at five, six years. And um, the document count for that went all the training records went through my hands when we had to turn over training records and every other report and all that stuff. And our Bates count for that was 15,000 documents that I had to review, redact (laughs) and stuff like that. I was the assistant trainer at the time. And I was the one that developed uh, what was our first computerized records keeping system that we did it on a flat file. Before there was Excel, there was Microsoft Works. And Mm -hmm. we built this thing in-house there to keep track of it. But it saved us because we could show that, um, you know, out of the times we found people, they would physically touch somebody 44%, a little less than 40% of the time. But there would be injuries um, maybe 16% of the time. And there would be injuries that required uh, something beyond an aid car looking at it um, about 3% of the time. And, and there would be something now the rules are say, we still have to take him to the hospital anyway. So that, that changes it. Now it's an apple and oranges comparison, but back then, you know, the aid, aid car and the, and the jail nurses would, would take care of it. And um, we'd have somebody who would go into the hospital beyond the emergency room up less than 1% of the time. So we knew rather than tracking the bite ratio, we tracked the injury ratio Mm -hmm. and the courts accepted that and said that was work. And it was a, it was an experiment that they did. They filed it in Washington state in state court rather than federal court, rather than making it a a 1983 violation. They filed it in state court because our definition of deadly force was more broad than the federal definition. And they were looking to have police dogs declare deadly force. They didn't care where they got it. They just wanted a court somewhere to declare them to be deadly force. They're still trying. <laughs> yeah. Well, but we're the only agency I know of that during those lawsuits in the 90s took them all the way to court on a class action lawsuit and beat them. We needed a 10-2 verdict and you know, 10, 10 jurors in favor to against. And we got a 12-0 in 45 minutes after wow. seven weeks of trial. Nice. Damn. You know, the, the attorneys we had um, just just did a marvelous job. But also, um, I, I think it's fair to say we operated a little differently than they expected. We didn't have the same model. You know, you mentioned the model in cities where people don't track. They just throw dogs over a fence and into the yard and yep. they give their warning and and every, and whoever there, you're going to get bit. Because our dogs, we had documented that we passed about 10,000 innocent parties per year during our training and deployments that and, and that we'd have maybe three unintended contacts during that time, usually not resulting in any, any injury or a significant injury. Um, we could say that we had a 99.97 um, discrimination rate where the dogs would successfully discriminate and not bother people that were innocents. And we'd rather have a dog fail and not get, get a track than pick the wrong person. And um, so that worked in our favor. Yeah, you just bury them with paperwork and, and good, good work and good statistics. So when, when you get hired at the PD, when you, or when you get into the canine unit, who, how many dogs were there then? Um, at that, at that point, um, we had 10. That's, well, that's not even that many is, no. is what you should, but who was the trainer then? The, well, the first trainer, when I, when I was a kid, before I went in the army was Larry Franklin. Um, Larry Franklin is the founding trainer for the unit. Um, they five to get five guys together and he was an old bird dog trainer. 
Um, you know, he, he hunted and he trained bird dogs. And so he was the logical guy to take it. And he was our first training master. And Larry Franklin um, was freaking brilliant uh, because he brought real common sense to the job. And uh, we tracked off lead in those days because of Larry's experience with um, retrievers. Mm -hmm. He said, if God intended dogs to track on lead, he would have put a D ring between their shoulder blades. And, <laughs> and yeah, you know, and here's, what's interesting during that lawsuit, we knew that over the course, I, we went back over statistics and we knew that over the course of seven years, bad bites were equally distributed between on lead and off lead tracks. In hmm. other words, you had, you know, I think it was like three to four or one way or the other. And um, that, what does that tell you? Is, is, is off lead tracking any more risky than on lead? No. no what if i told yeah. you we tracked off lead eight times as often as we did on lead does that change that the significance yeah, of the those same amount of accident yeah yeah, yeah sure. the opportunities for errors were up there and here's what one of the things we found <clears throat> is that when the dogs were on lead the most likely scenario was going around the corner and bumping into somebody <clears throat> pardon me whether it's on or off it didn't matter that was the scenario where they were most likely to have a have a bad bite where the and so the dog would go around a corner and there would be somebody and they would collide the dogs off lead eight times as often didn't bother that person the dogs on lead did why do you think there's difference I have no idea. I did say it had something to do with speed or had something to do with handler like intervention somehow. Handler, handler can't see what's happening. It's on the other side. But think about this. How do you stimulate aggression when you're trying to teach a dog to bite? Uh, back pressure. Back pressure. Yeah. Bingo. <laughs> yeah. Tension. Back opposition reflex. Yeah. Right. Okay. So all that of a sense. sudden, the dog feels the back pressure, and here's this person who goes, Wah! and what does that dog say? You're oh, yeah. a good core. You're a good decoy. You'll do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you'll get that. He's there looking for somebody. Whereas the dogs that are off lead, they literally bump into them with their head and like, excuse me, and just go around them. We'd have some that would, we'd have suspects that would hide. They'd go to a bus stop and they'd wait with a crowd of people waiting for the bus. And the dogs would track through the people and they go literally bump their head into the guy and go, Hey, you're the one. And, and that would be it. And all the people in the bus up say, yeah, he's not a usual, he's not a regular at this stop at this time of day. Right. So your yeah. <laughs> the trainers that you had at the time, are they um, also in charge of the unit or are they in charge of the training? Um, they're in charge of all things dog and the sergeant would be in charge of all things people and, and would handle the budget would handle the, you know, keep the lights on, keep the water running, would, you know, order the equipment. And it would be the equipment that the training master would say we need to order. Um, but if somebody said this dog's not working out or this, this handler is not competent to handle a dog, the training master had final say on that. Mm, and okay. now, you know, we can't use the term training master. So it's the training supervisor uh, or lead trainer. Um, and um, I was the, I've been the only person that was, brought down there to be a training sergeant. Uh, they did that in 2014 until I retired. Um, and 
had my ups and downs. I've made my fair share of mistakes, even on that third trip, you'd think you'd learn, but no, but, um, but the legacy I have of the trainers that followed before me, my, my first mentor was Tim Teakin, who uh, took over as trainer right after Larry Franklin. Then there was Tom Miller. Um, then Teakin came back. And then I worked for Teakin. I kept, they Teakin brought me into the unit at that point. At the time he was my first mentor, I was working and handling a dog in Kitsap County. He was a patrol dog handler there as a deputy sheriff. Mm. And I'd come over to Seattle to train and, and Teakin, you know, Teakin took good care of me. And, you know, Tom Miller did too. Tom recently passed away. Well, yeah, it's always good to have, it's, it's always good to have um, like a cohesive unit like that. And um, it's, it's, it's interesting because when I was the head trainer at my unit, uh, I was just a patrolman, but they made me like a supervisor kind of. So like all the lawsuits, all that, that would have all fallen on me. Yes. You got vicarious liability. If you're the trainer, there's no doubt about it. That that flows right through you, bro. Yeah. And, and to include compiling all the stats and all that other stuff. So it's, it's good to have a, a, a good sized team like that. So we're going to go ahead and take a first break. We come back. We're going to um, hop into some tracking techniques that uh, Ted has alluded to a little bit and um, talk about that. I've, this is something I've heard of way back in the day and, and I'm curious to hear the origins of it. So we'll be right back. HITS Canine Training Conference. This is America's premier canine training seminar packed to the brim with the world's best instructors and me and Eric. All covering important topics. There's no better place to learn and no better place to network with other handlers, breeders, and trainers. HITS 2022 is being held in Orlando, Florida this year, August 16th through the 19th. And I know how you guys are. Everybody waits the last minute. And in the post-Rona world, everybody's training budgets are being cut and everybody's deciding whether they're going to be able to get to go or not. So don't wait because they're not going to have an infinite number of spots and the price goes up after a certain date. So get signed up as soon as possible. It's in Orlando. We'll see you there. Be sure to hit them up. Hits K9, letter K number net. One of the best relationships we have in this podcast and in this industry is with the great people down at Kinetic Dog Food. The story of Kinetic uh, Performance Dog Food is pretty simple. They wanted to make a better premium dog food for the dogs that need it the most. Their goal is to give every working and sporting dog a higher energy level, better performance, and better overall health through superior nutrition. So they formulated a line of food based on what they considered to be the optimal profile of a performing of performance dog. They've done tons of research on this. This isn't their first rodeo. These guys know what they're doing. If you're a kennel, they will come to your kennel. They will see the problems that you have. They will check out what works for the dogs that you have. Um, they're amazing people to work with. They drop ship a pallet right to you if you want. Um, I know a lot of guys that use them. There's a bunch of different formulas on there. And uh, 32K might not be for your dogs. Maybe the 26K works. They can adjust it. They'll give you the right ideas what to do in different parts of the year. Winter's different than summer. It's uh, it's really a well-run, good dog food um, company, kineticdogfood.com. Be sure to check them out on social media too, man. They're, they're amazing folks, kineticdogfood.com. By now, you've probably all heard my story at least once. I'm usually getting tagged by dogs or hurting myself. So this next product is like near and dear to me because I actually use it. Uh, Quick Turn by Vet Care. 
it does great for keeping small things from turning into big ones. I use it at the kennel for uh, clients' dogs that have some issues with skin stuff or have food allergies or have environmental allergies. Works great. Keeps hot spots from making giant hot spots. And it keeps my working dogs who inevitably find magnificent ways to hurt themselves from turning it into a giant vet visit. Stops little issues from becoming big ones. So it comes in a spray, it comes in an ointment, it comes in a dressing. It's great for creating a protective barrier and promoting wound healing. You really only have to use it like once a day. So there's no reason not to have it in the vehicle. Since it's temperature stable, you don't got to worry about it getting hot, getting cold or anything like that. So put it in your first aid kit or put it in your cabinet. Vetcare.us on the internet. Quick term by Vetcare on the inter- on Instagram and on Facebook. And then hit them up with the discount code 10WDR for 10% off your first order. So my entire time that I was a handler or a trainer in law enforcement, the cars at my department in the departments that I trained all had American aluminum accessory kennels in the cars, different cars, man, Dodge chargers, all Ford models, some Chevys, uh, SUVs, cars, everything. We loved American aluminum accessories. Um, it's a great product, a great company. They've been serving uh canine law enforcement community for over 20 years, if you check out their uh, website, EZ, that's the letter Z, EZRiderOnline.com. They got testimonials. They got videos on how to. They got a list of everything they have. Uh, just today, we made a post on the Working Dog Radio social media showing a dog that survived a really bad crash because of the American aluminum kennel in the back of the car. Check them out online, guys. EZRiderOnline.com. Just let them do their thing, man. Whatever car you got for your work, your patrol car. Get a hold of them, American Aluminum Accessories, and get the best in the business. Next up comes uh, training courses online from our friends down at Highland Canine Training, Jason and Aaron Ferguson. So in the post-Rona world, uh, training budgets have been getting cut. People aren't going to be able to travel, whether it be instructors or they be canine handlers and supervisors going somewhere else for training. So Highland has announced a lot of online training courses. One of those that sticks out to me is their police supervisor canine course. And it's no secret that one of the problems with canine tends to be some of the supervision issues. This course is specifically designed for administrators and covers utilization as well as liability and FLSA issues. The course can be taken at your convenience and you'll receive a certificate of completion at the end. When you go to Tactical Police Canine Training, that's letter K number nine, training.com and use the discount code WDR30, you'll get 30% off of that course. All right, we are back uh, with Steve White from um, up near Seattle, up Seattle PD, uh, since recently retired. So before the break, we were talking a little bit uh, about how you guys started out in cemeteries and the dogs started figuring out like, oh, all I got to do is go look behind the headstones or go look behind a monument. I don't have to, I don't you actually mean before have to I went off on a tangent and talked about well, all sorts of other stuff? Well, yeah, Perfect. I mean, but but we're we're circling back to like, the lessons learned and like the foundations of this, uh, the hit training, the, like the, the hydration training. So um, we talked, you kind of like hit on the high points of that problem. Um, I have a dog right now that is extremely visually stimulated um, and I'm using the hydration method to track him because if you move in front of him, he will not put his head down and he's constantly head hunting. He is constantly, constantly head hunting. And if he sees somebody run with a suit or a sleeve or just in general, if you run from him, he's going to go bite you. And let's put so, a pin in that because I want to come back to that dog okay. later. Excellent. His name's Kevlar. He's a cool Kevlar. dog. Um, <laughs> he's a cool dog. Um, so talk a little bit about how we get to starting this method with this hydration tracking. 
So uh, it started in the 90s when as Seattle started to get more urbanized, our success rates started going down. Uh, we were having a rougher time, particularly with hard surface areas and transitions. As we started to have more and more paved areas, it got tougher. And um, I haven't had an original thought in my life, okay? I'm going to tell you right now, everything I've got, I got from somebody else, and I'm going to tell you who I got it from, almost everything. This one um, came, I was um, teaching at a uh, one of Bob Eden's International Police Canine Conferences, and Jeff Fenton from Phoenix was one of the other instructors. And over beers after one of the days, you know, training, he was talking about a guy he met uh, who came from Sweden, who talked about making scent in a bottle, which was take a bucket, you take a dirty t-shirt, soak it in there, take that water, pour it into a sprayer and spray your track. And he literally talked about spraying with a little hand sprayer like that. Um, and I said, hmm, hmm, that's really interesting. And I thought I'd try it. And, and I'm going to say that, you know, Jeff had a copy of the police report where he had followed a guy for almost 11 miles in Arizona. Holy and if you can, shit. if you can do that, if you can do, and, and at one point this guy was on a bicycle. So, I mean, it's like, that was a hell of a track. And, and Jeff would like take this report and he would like, he'd hold it up and there would be this light come down from the heavens. And it was like, it was amazing. Um, and it was one of those tracks where you got breadcrumbs along the way, because as you did it, there would be people to say, you're looking for a guy or witnesses would say, somebody just went through my backyard. <clears throat> so it's not all the dog, but I mean, the dog is putting pressure on this guy to keep going. It's, it, it was pretty amazing. And, um, but Jeff said that, and that dog, I trained with this set in a bottle, this Swedish guy told me. And he said, who, I, I want to know, who is this? I want to find that guy. And he says, I don't know. I met him one time at a conference and then I never saw him again. But I love it and I tried it. We don't track much, but my dog can and I like to use it. Okay, so I come back up and now Seattle is struggling with this urbanization problem. And at the same time I saw that, I saw Gottfried Dildai's video on training tracking dogs for Schutzen, which is he uses a pretty sterile dirt field with a lot, no vegetation, makes deep footprints and puts a piece of food in every step. I said, hmm, that's pretty good too. So he's using a place that doesn't have a lot of vegetative component. We'd always been adherents to Bill Syratuck stuff from Scent and the Setting Dog. And he shows the graph about when you're tracking on vegetation, you have to watch out, particularly if you do those runoffs, because if you, if you look at it, I'll try and do this so that you can see, but so this is the scale running along here of time. This is the scale of relative scent intensity. When you walk across grass, there's an initial spike in the first 15 minutes that goes up to here. That's where you've crushed the cells of the grass and now they leak out all their liquid contents and chlorophyll and stuff like that. Then it drops down and then there's a slow increase like this. The humid component comes off and it has a slow increase as bacterial activity on the skin rafts and things that are working on the VOCs and all that ramp up like that. And so one of the things that happens is in the early part, the humid components down here the vegetative component is up here. So if you're doing tracks under 30 minutes, guess what the dog says? Yeah, he's tracking disturbed. Follow, I mean, follow yeah, the vegetation, Yeah, right? Because 
Um, Ken Licklider, uh, you know, my wife tells me I'm supposed to be a professional and say that dogs are opportunists. I love my wife. She's right. But Kenny Licklider is a little more colorful. He says they're all cheating bastards. They will find the easiest way to solve the problem if, you, if, if it's out there. And if the, if the crushed vegetation is an easier way to solve the problem, they'll use it. It's not cheating to them because there, there's no rules. It's just, how do I solve the problem? How do I find this person and get my reinforcement? And so we started realizing this wasn't right. We started playing with this. And the first thing we did is we tried to free shape scent because I got lucky with one dog I had and she would free shape really easily. And we just sprayed some of this stuff on the ground and she went to investigate it. I'd click and toss her her piece of fire hose or tug toy and she'd bring it over. We'd have a little tug. I'd tell her out and she would like, okay, is this the game we're in? She'd run back to that thing and she'd bang it and she'd go like that, pay her one more time. But the third time I sent her out there, she'd bang it and then she'd come to go to, and she go, that didn't work. Apparently you didn't see it. And she'd put her nose down and she'd take a couple steps and I could pay that. And then from there, she started learning, oh, it's a linear thing. I got to follow this spray. And then you could do that. Um, and so we tried doing that, but with younger handlers that didn't have experience and didn't have the timing, it was really tough getting them not to, to muck that problem, that, that up. But we eventually got there with just that spray and paying them with fire hose. And literally it, you just, if the dog is on it and he's following it, you would toss the fire hose. And it was just fire hose we got from the fire department, some training hose that wasn't too chemically contaminated. And we take the liner piece and we would throw it as a fetch toy right over their, their head. And just as it would cross over their head, you'd mark and say, good. And this thing would appear in front of them. And that way they're not turning around to come and collect it. You probably didn't have to do that if you had clean marker behaviors, but that's another story. Um, and those dogs were pretty good. Those first two dogs that we trained with using spray tracks with no food on the ground um, were producing at veteran levels within three months instead of the usual nine months to a year. So like, it was like they Damn. first, one of those dogs, his very first track was through our international district uh, known as what would have been called Chinatown is now the international district. And he literally, it was um, um, just under a mile and he wound up weaving between two guys like a figure eight around them. And it turned out that guy, the suspect had stopped and talked to them for a little bit to get directions. And then it continued on. And they, they said, yeah, the guy you're looking for went that way. And he was cool as a cucumber. And they thought they didn't think anything about it, but the description matched. And lo and behold, it, it wound up coming up with the guy. The other one wound up getting a hat trick of three dog cases in one night. So we knew that this could work. Um, the old timers hated it. Well, those poor new handlers, they took a beating. We'd show up to lunch and the old guys would take their napkins, dunk it in water, and then squeeze it out and dribble a line on the table at Denny's and say, see if your dog can follow that. And it no. was like, it was brutal. <laughs> but, and it got worse when the young guys were starting to perform at levels that matched theirs really fast. Then the attacks on those guys got really, really, I mean, like, like brutal videos, brutal videos of uh, gag videos that, that were done for our annual banquet. But it wound up working out in the long run. But after a while, we realized there was another route, the lowest common denominator approach, and that is actually putting food on the ground with it. So here's where I'm going to give the caveat, because before the before we started recording, one of the things you and I talked about, Ted, was that um, not everything for every dog. 
And I don't believe that you have to use hydration and intensified tracking training for every dog. You don't have to spray for every dog, particularly if you have a dog that's really adept at tracking to begin with and likes it as an activity anyway, because you're going to actually wind up damaging their motivation. And so what we wound up doing was doing this as the lowest common denominator approach and finding out that it worked for the broadest array of dogs. And then if we had a dog that really came in, like dialed in, he got less and we would use it just for a couple of special things here and there. And the other dogs would get more and you just, you're constantly tweaking. So in one class, you can't have one size fits all. You're going to do it this way. So some guys are going to be doing one thing and others are going to be doing another because the dog is the one that determines what it's ready for. And so we adapt and we adjust the, the approach that we're using based on what the dog tells us works. Did you find um, equal success on leash and off leash or what, what seemed to work best when you started doing that? Um, in the early stages, we do it on lead, on a collar, not under the leg. We let the dog investigate it. So now we're going to go back to Kevlar. Kevlar is the dog that has what I, what the, the, one of the, the Dutchmen that I knew years ago said, he has a low visual, um, uh, uh, low visual sensory threshold that it doesn't take much of a visual stimulus for that dog to orient on it and move. If it moves in his environment, he's going to check it out. Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And so we had, we've had dogs like that too. And it's tough to beat. <clears throat> um, but here's what I'd recommend. Don't bother with tracking it first. Just teach him that the ground pays. Spray it in a circle, about a three-foot circle. Load that up with treats and let him start eating. When he's comfortably eating like that, then you have somebody start moving around in the environment off in the distance. And you keep that up. And then you start having more people do it. Then you take it to a busy area where that's naturally doing that more, where you're going to see it like, and, and you, you teach him that that stuff pays. And once he's solid enough at just eating off of that circle, all that stuff going on, you take that circle and you give it a little tail that sticks out like that. That's the linear part. So once he's eaten all that, all of a sudden this is here and this is where he continue can go out there and, and get it. And the idea is he starts learning some linear stuff. And then from there, you can shrink the size of the circle and lengthen the length of the tail. And then it becomes a linear activity. And remember, even when you're doing this with the treats, you're going to keep them in that early stages, like spaced every four to four to eight inches. The dog will tell you where it's smooth when they yeah. get that nice biomechanically smooth and efficient stride that they can maintain forever. That's, that's where I think is the sweet spot. And that's just me. That's sort of how I started him. I used a square instead of a circle and mm -hmm. we went to a completely sterile area with no other people. And then I went to an area that was like, there's a bunch of like car dealerships and car shops and stuff. And they're way off like 50, 60 yards away. And he was, you know, kind of head hunting and doing the whole like thing mm -hmm. still, but he, that's initially how we started him. And, um, it's, it's mod I've modified how I did, how I'm doing building searches with him too, because he's, I know if I allow him to <clears throat> do a traditional hot building search, uh, he's going to like that, whoever, well, I know who the handler's going to be, but he's going to be working on capping with this dog for his entire fucking life. And like he bites now. I'm like, he's good. <laughs> like he doesn't need to bite anymore. Like he, he does not need any convincing. <laughs> so, yeah. but that's, that's, an, that's, that's how we started. Um, and um, it, it's one of those deals that 
had I started him traditionally, like you said, in the disturbed earth method, uh, he, they would have not. And I've been told by people local to me that dogs like that can't track. I'm like, what the fuck you mean they can't track? I'm like, yeah, they can. They can. You just got to figure out how to do it, right? We just yeah. got to, like, I've just got to figure out how to teach him to keep his head down. You, you can train any animal to do anything it's mentally and physically capable of. That doesn't always mean it's a good idea. Right. So sometimes that dog, you know, you're right. He can track. But they may say, it's not worth my time and effort. I don't want to go through that much to get him there and to keep him there because that dog will regress because you can never, you can never get rid of early reinforcement history. doesn't matter what happens. That event is there. Um, all you can do is remember that the solution to pollution is dilution. So if he has a history of being successful with his head up and his eyes, you, you can never get rid of that. But so consider that like poison, that's arsenic. So if I give you this glass of arsenic and ask you to drink it, what's going to happen to you? Dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, if I take this and I pour it into a bathtub and give you a glass, what will happen to you? Mm. Probably not going to die. <laughs> yeah. huh? You're going to have a bad day, but you're, you're, you're going to die. You're going to get pretty sick, but you're not going to die. Now, right. if instead I take this glass, I pour it into a swimming pool and yeah, give I'll you a fine. glass of that. I'll be all right. You won't, yeah, you won't be as sick but you'll be okay. If I pour it into Lake Washington outside of Seattle and then give you a drink on that, you probably wouldn't even notice. So the solution to pollution is dilution, but you can never get rid of it because even trace amounts can pop back up again at some point and, and affect you. And so when it comes to a dog like that, you're going you're gonna to have this thing where it looks really good and then something will trigger, some contingency in the environment will trigger it. It'll pop back up. So what you have to teach him is how to get himself back into the game. And you have to teach the handler how to help the dog get back into the game without running the show. And yeah. that's the hard part because mm -hmm. cops are goal-oriented creatures. And they're, they, you give them a goal, I want you to fix this. They, are, they, will, they will pound a screw in with that hammer that they've got. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we're going to take a break real quick. When we come back, though, I want to talk a little bit about the mechanics of it, because I get asked all the time about it, especially when um, admins come and dudes from like, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but like your generation, that were handlers, and they come back like, what? Yeah, both Eric and Steve are both looking at me. Hey, I'm like, on Medicare, like, man. I, you, you can't hurt my feelings. <laughs> but they're like, what are you doing? And so I kind of explain it to them. They're like, does that work? I'm like, yeah, fuck yeah, it works. So uh, watch. So when we get back, uh, we'll talk about kind of the mechanics of it because we get asked about it a lot. I've had a lot of Instagram things and I've had a lot of Facebook stuff and text yeah. messages about it. Sounds so, good. Uh, we'll be back in just a second. So don't go anywhere. Don't fast forward through the commercials. All right, we love the Perkinsons down in uh, North Carolina at Highland Canine Training. They are great people, great trainers. They got a good business model. They're awesome folks. We've been with them for a long time. Uh, they're also super smart. And they understand that a lot of agencies are struggling to have manpower, so they're not sending people away for training. You guys have been there. You know you put in denied lack of manpower. So they've created an online course section of their website tactical police canine training.com you get on there under training the online course but here's the best thing is they offer a supervisor canine supervisor course which we know a lot of uh, police canine supervisors don't get to go to training they don't know as much as they should right here online 
the course discusses topics such as proper selection of dogs and handlers, proper deployment, effective allocation and utilization, as well as liability and the FLSA issues, which we know is where all the legal stuff comes from, interdepartmental. Uh, the course can be taken at your convenience and you will receive a certificate of completion at the end. Uh, they're offering an amazing discount, guys. 30% off using the discount code WDR30. It's a no-brainer. If you're a police supervisor and you guys have manpower issues and you can't go, get on tacticalpolicek9training.com under the training tab. Get on that supervisor's course, man. I'm telling you, it's a smart decision. Another one of our favorite partnerships with the podcast here is the one and only Dogtra. The Dogtra guys have been producing some amazing tools in the dog training world for a long time. Everything from e-collars, GPS tracking, ball trainers. If it's electric and you use it with a dog, they've probably done it. They're the best. They are revolutionizing the way you communicate with the dog. I use it daily, whether I'm using pets. Uh, I use the 200C on most of our pets. Uh, most of my patrol guys will use a 1900 hands-free, 1900S hands-free. And then I use the ball popper pretty much daily with all of our detection dogs for imprinting on our box protocols. So hit them up at Dogtra Official on Instagram and Facebook. And then you've got Dogtra.com. And when you go there, if you use the discount code WDR10, they'll give you 10% off a single item over 200 bucks. So if you're looking at a 1900S or that Ball Popper Pro or one of those things, it'll knock a substantial chunk off there. So hit them up, doctor.com, WDR10. So everybody knows that Ted and I uh, not only train police dogs, we train pet dogs, right? We train dogs. So it's why our relationship with Ray Allen Manufacturing is so important. These guys have been doing this so long. They knew and they understand that dogs are dogs and it's not just working dog people that need things for their dog and dog training. So you go to rayallen.com. They have everything dog related that you need. Anything that when it comes to dogs, pet dogs, your pet training dogs, police dogs, dogs you're training for other departments, anything you need, rayallen.com. Uh, they've got it. You can get on there. So if you're ordering stuff for police dogs and if you have a pet side, you can get it all in one, man. They ship it out. Got a nice big box full of a whole bunch of stuff. There's nothing better than getting a big box of dog training stuff in the mail. They also are great to us and they offer a discount code working dog radio, all capital letters, working dog radio for 10% off. Check them out. RayAllen.com. Great people. Ted and I use them every day. Super excited to have American Aluminum Accessories on board with us here at the podcast. These guys manufacture a wide variety of products from high quality cam locker toolboxes to an extensive line of products designed to meet the ever-changing needs of law the law enforcement community. Around 1992, due to the demand for safe and secure transport for a local law enforcement agency's canine unit, they introduced the very first in-vehicle Easy Rider canine container. So it was basically what we now call just our inserts. They have continuously grown and expanded uh, the products, catering to the needs and the wants of their valued customers and high-profile clientele, and catering specifically to law enforcement. Over the years, as the needs have changed for law enforcement, they've evolved and expanded the products to include inmate transport systems, the canine training aids, which I use quite a bit of, canine inserts. Most of, every one of my guys has one of those things. And you know, you if you're not even have to be in law enforcement. I have several friends that are civilians that work. <laughs> lots of dogs that have the inserts put into their cars too so you got one that fits you can do it uh they also do contraband and animal control systems just to name a few so be sure to hit them up the website is easy rider online so that's the letter e the letter z as in zebra 
rideronline.com. If you're looking for them on Instagram and Facebook, it's American Aluminum Accessories. Feel free to hit them up there too. So our first and oldest sponsor that's been with us from the beginning is Arno out, out at ALM, uh, out there in, in Las Vegas area. Arno is a great dude. He makes great stuff for, for police work and sport work, suits, tugs. I'm telling you right now, his tugs are the best in the business. You can't get any better. Multiple colors. Uh, I, I buy boxes of them from him and give them out to everybody. Uh, I've got a bite suit from him. Love it. I've had it for a little over three years and it's holding up like a champ. Um, Ted's got a suit that he's had forever from ALM. Uh, we wouldn't go anywhere else, man. We love it. Arno is such a good dude. His uh, ALM canine equipment.com is the website. Get on there. He's got pre-made suits. He can do custom suits based on your measurements. Um, he's got stuff already, already made up. If you kind of get a kind of generic large size, maybe for everybody, the colors he has, man, is really cool. He can put a lot of stuff on those suits. Uh, check them out. ALM canine equipment.com and use the discount code WD radio for 10% off. You know, running a kennel is one of those things that I always worry about is cleanliness and safety of dogs. And it's, and it seems like it's an ever changing issue being able to house dogs and move things around everything else. So the guys at horizon structure make this as easy as possible. Literally the only thing you have to do is have water and power hookups and they deliver it. And you can put dogs in that day and it's comes built, comes on a trailer. They just drop it off. You plug it in, put dogs in it and you're ready to rock. You keep them clean. You keep them safe. You keep them cool in the summer and warm in the winter time. And it's completely custom. You can go complete mild to wild. I've seen some that were stainless steel all the way from top to bottom on the inside. And then I've seen some for a, a bulldog breeder that, you know, had smaller gates because those things can't jump. So if you reach out to them, uh, they're sitting there waiting for you to call and help you through the custom design process. They have everything from two dog ones up to, uh, I want to say like 18 or 20. It's a lot of, you can put a lot of dogs, indoor, outdoor runs. So anything you've ever dreamed of, they've got it or have done it or can do it. So they've taken all the guesswork out of building it. Everything is pre-done to your specifications that it's assembled, dropped off, boom, you're ready to rock. These things are amazing. Uh, Rigney has one. Uh, we've had him on the show a couple of times. Go check out his Instagram and you can see he's posted it up there before. Go look Horizon up at Horizon Structures, spelled out uh, on the internet. It's horizonstructures.com. And you're going to look for the link in there that says commercial dog kennels. Or give them a call, 888-447-4337. They'd love to talk to you and get you started on the way. All right, we are back uh, with Steve White, recently retired from Seattle PD. We've been talking about uh, hydration intensified tracking. Eric's clapping for the retirement. <laughs> you preach it, brother. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, now you're, now you're going to get busy. Ask Eric. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so um, we talked a little bit about like kind of like where the foundation of it came from. You said you had, um, and it came from the random Swedish guy um, and Jeff Fenton from, Jeff in, Fenton from uh, Phoenix. Yep. Yeah. From Phoenix. And um, so once you introduce this and you introduce it to a female, Mal or I assume it was a Malinois that was doing that, or was it a Shepherd? No, it was a German Shepherd. Okay. She, uh, she didn't know she wasn't a Malinois. Okay. Solid well, Black Shepherd, built like a Malinois, acted like a Malinois. I loved her. Her name was Ayla. And I just bought my own car and I'm going to name that car Ayla in, in honor of her. It's a good right. name. I like that. So uh, these days, uh, Malinois and Dutch Shepherds, for that matter, and are much more prevalent. Um, the thing with those dogs is they tend to be like you said a minute ago have a super low visual threshold or extremely prey driven on top of that 
when I watch departments test dogs, um, they're constantly looking for drive, 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 drive. Then they get a young dog and they're like, we need to drive building. I'm like, God damn it. He's got enough drive for three police dogs. Well, how much more do you need? And then they have problems with drive capping for the dog's entire career and they can't figure it out. So, um, one thing that I've found that this method is great for is dogs like that, that are super gnarly because I've used the other methods. I mean, I've got, you know, several methods to do this, but I, I immediately kind of like feel a dog out and I'm like, you, sir, will not be chasing anybody on a track until your handler school when right. we'll start teaching proximity alerts separately. You, yeah, I've you've got to learn to track first, homie. So, <laughs> and that this dog Kevlar we're talking about, if you, the handler's listening to this, Bro, he ain't going to buy it on a track until you get him in a leash because he's not going to do it with, with me because he doesn't need any help. Um, but so talk a little bit about kind of the the steps. Talk about the do you like still make the I call it the soup um, or yeah. is it just they are water, water like so kind of go through the mechanics <clears throat> and go through the progression. So now for this lowest common denominator approach that works with the broadest array of dogs, all we do is we put in. Um, and we take a garden sprayer that's devoted to this purpose. It's never been used before. One of those one gallon pump up ones that you can get yep. at Home Depot, Lowe's, whatever. And we fill it with um, unchlorinated water. I don't care whether the water is distilled or ozone purified or comes from a well, but you don't want chlorine in it for two reasons. Part of the bacterial scent pic, part of the scent picture is bacteria. And if Chlorine's purpose is to kill bacteria. So why am I adding something to this scent picture that's going to kill something that I actually wanted to want the dog to follow? And second, chlorine has its own smell that's pretty distinct. Last thing I want is to put a concomitant odor in there that I, that I don't need. So unchlorinated water in a sprayer and you spray it on the ground, literally in the beginning on a stream that's maybe about two inches wide, a straight stream. You're going to go about 20, 30 feet and put treats down every four inches. Bring your dog up to the front end, feeding some treats as you walk up. you got treats in your hand as he, as he walks up there. And then as you get to the track, you get clumsy and you, you start lowering your hand. And just as you get to the track, you get clumsy and you drop some right there by the front of the track. You're not pointing to it. You're not telling him to do anything. You just shut your mouth, let the dog figure it out for himself. Um, you know, That's the big thing is way too many people are trying to make it happen when instead they should be watching for when it happens to let it happen so that they can mark that it happened and give that dog what they need. But you just kind of get those treats and let them drop on the ground. He'll eat those. And then all of a sudden he discovers, Oh, there's, there's other ones here. And some dogs will pull themselves along that right away. Others won't. You have to start with that circle and teach them that it's good to put your nose down on the ground and just repeat, rinse and repeat until the dog is calm and steady. I, I don't go faster than that until I see the dog calming down. Once I see the dog getting in, getting clear headed, then I start adding length. And once I've added length, we pretty quickly start going from straight lines to serpentines and serpentines literally where you're, uh, you know, just a wavy line where you're 20 feet between the tops of the arcs. So there's, it's, and it's very shallow just enough to keep them from blitzing and going in a straight line. They learn to follow their nose instead of run with their nose. Does that make sense? Yep. Oh yeah. And then once you've got them doing the serpentines like that, then we just start increasing the angle on those serpentines until they become arcs into a turn. 
and they figure that out. Then we start making right angles and we go from there. Um, off to the side, while we're doing all this, we're teaching the dog to down at articles because you can't keep food on the track forever. So articles become pay stations. And once the dog learns to lie at an article and get paid there, you got a way you can pay them on tracks for a long way. Now, here's a cheat. Go find yourself a nice covered parking garage. You know, where we're at, the problem is rain. And in the winter, um, by the way, if you go somewhere where it's raining, we still spray. Because that rain, that water from your sprayer is different from the rain water. And they can tell. Um, but you reverse the order. Put the treats down and then spray. So like I'll walk a 20 foot, like when it's dry, I will walk 20 feet spraying with that two inch line with my feet straddling the line. Then I go back around on the downwind side, come back to the start. And then I drop treats every four inches all along that 20, 20, 30 feet. Walk back around the downwind side again and get out of the picture. They bring the dog up and let him work. Um, if it's raining, you reverse the order. You put the treats down first and then you spray because the treats will be your breadcrumbs will tell you where to spray. That's mm -hmm. the only difference we make when it rains. Um, but once you've got the dog going maybe 100 feet on serpentines, then it's time to start weaning out the treats. And we do it by just putting gaps and see how he handles gaps. And, you, and once you get some gaps that are pretty sizable, you'll see the dogs start to miss it and they'll they'll cast around. And as this gets longer, um, the visible component fades itself out because it starts to evaporate and evaporation winds up giving them it's, you know, it's, there's residue of what was still there, but that the reason you're using the spray is for a couple of things in the beginning. Yes, it's visual. And I don't like to stay in the visual phase long because if you keep in the visual phase too long, you'll probably never get them to truly focus. And that's a problem, but we'll bring it back to, where they're working. Um, but we use this also because um, we, or we use the spray also because it acts as an adhesive for the scent. I don't know if you've ever tried taking, spraying that line, but we all have puffer bottles. Everybody who graduates from my class, I make a puffer bottle for them, fill it with baby powder and open up the opening, use an old eye, eyedropper bottle so that they can check wind currents. But if you take one of that thing, that puffer bottle, and you let it put it on the upwind side of one of the spray, you'll see that it will stick where that spray is. The skin rash that come off of your body are a lot like that, that cornstarch or talc that's in baby powder. And they will stick there too. And so you're actually concentrating this a little more than it would be, making it more salient. And it's the idea of what you're managing is salience, how much it differs from the background. And once I, once I get to the point where I can get the dog out and he's reliably following this, and I've got maybe three to 5,000 steps in it, where the dog has walked three to 5,000 steps doing that, then I think he's probably got a pretty good classically conditioned association with it. We fade out the food, then we fade out the water, and then we bring the water in only for remedial things. Because the dog has been conditioned with it, you can probably just touch this dog up once every few weeks or a month with a little spray and some treats. And then you can use just the water when you want to start teaching a new skill, like tracking through an apartment building, like going up the steps and onto the end of the landing through that and that kind of things, tracking through a mall, um, tracking where there's crowds of people, 
you can use that to help increase the salience of the track and then fade it out and let him learn that to follow this without it. It's, it's a very powerful skill building and remedial tool once you've made the classical associations. The whole point of this is you're taking an opera, opera procedure and harnessing the classical conditioning that happens with it at the same time. Just remember, every time you're using Skinner's methods, Pavlov is sitting on your shoulder. You don't have any choice. And if you don't harness classical conditioning, you're going to be fighting it. So once you've got the dog working on those gaps and handling that stuff, we teach them that there are going to be articles on the track. And remember, we've been off to the side teaching them to down at articles. Mm -hmm. And the way... Nope, we lost your audio. Hit my space bar. Yeah. There, there you go. So the track is here. Or, or, or actually, you know, there's a track runs up to this. This is a fence. And right here where this, um, where my thumb is, there's a gate. The track will go up along there. Let me pull this back so it's more focused. Mm -hmm. The track comes along and this chain, and we like a chain link fence. And once we've we got this dog doing articles away from the track, we want to teach him that this is going to work for him. So we go up this gate and right there at the end where the gate is, the, the spray will stop. The article is left. The track layer goes through the gate and disappears. You have the dog track up on this way. He's going to come up on this. He's never seen an article on a track before. He's always been following these things at the end. So he has no idea what to do. So just before he gets to it, you're going to cue him to down. He's going to see this object. It's been a cue to down in the past. So now he drops down. And you go up there and you pay him at that. Over time, you start backing it away from the gate. Once you've got that, and you do it at a variety of gates, not always the same one. Once you've got him there and he's downing out here, now you can use it almost anywhere. You know, once you're 20, 30 feet away from the gate, the gate's irrelevant. This is just done to manage behavior without you having to hold him back. Mm. All you do, you're not forcing it. You're giving him an opportunity. Cues are green lights. Means you do this, you're going to get paid. <clears throat> So and real quick, I have got. one question for you. Um, when you're starting in the beginning with the straight line and then you, you're going into the S curves and stuff, where are you trying to set it up with wind direction in the beginning? Um, I used to worry about it a lot. Uh, all I need to know right now when I'm doing this is um, I try to do them crosswind so that when the person track layer goes out this way, he can go around on the down one side to come back. So he's not just distributing more scent all over it that way. <clears throat> and what you'll see is when the tracks start to fade and you start to uh, you know, evaporate, when you get evaporation where they don't have the spray so salient there because it's wet and you have fewer treats, you'll see dogs then start gravitating to the downwind side. And I want that mm -hmm. because when they get into tracks where there's um, been a lot of contamination and a lot of stuff, they got to learn those strategies to manage drifted scent. I don't need them to be footstep for footstep in the city. I just need them to pick the right person. And some dogs are going to be within a couple of feet of that track when they drift downwind and others are going to drift 10, 15 feet. I'll tell you the ones that only drift a little bit tend to be clearer about turns and getting through other problems but we let the dog kind of tell us where it works for them 
as long as they're not frantic. We want the dogs clear-headed. Yeah. You know, you talked, uh, Ted talked about this earlier, Eric, about dogs that, are, that like have more drive than anything else. Larry Franklin, that first training master we had at Seattle, <clears throat> he didn't want those dogs. He cared more about, about a dog that he called self-right. And that's his term he came up with. And a self-right dog is a dog that walks anywhere in the world and feels confident. Doesn't, never goes looking for a fight, but will gladly stand his ground if one comes his way. A dog that is curious and eager and wants to, you know, can get along with people, but isn't over solicitous to them. He's the dog that really kind of, the, the true alpha, not the one that people think is an alpha that goes around bullying people. The true mm -hmm. alpha is like, I don't sweat you. I don't sweat you, man. I'm, I'm here. I'm here for the party. Let's go. Right. So uh, I just looked at the clock and I know we're, we got to get you going. I've got more time. My schedule opened up if you need it. So, oh, cool. Even better. Um, so we, I like that idea of the, um, uh, downing on the articles um, and then moving it back. So when you're paying them on that, are you just using food? Yeah. Uh, well, it depends, you know, and you're going to get that answer for me on almost everything. The dog will tell me what works best for him. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we had one of those first two clicker trained and, and hydration spray trade dogs we had was um, unbeknownst to us, the handler had really kind of cranked on that dog in the, on things and had tried to poison proof him. And all he wanted was toys. He didn't care about food. I mean, you've seen these dogs that don't care about it. So mm -hmm. we had to create a token economy, which was eat a piece of food and then you get your tug. Eat a piece of food, get your tug, food, tug, food, tug, food, food, tug, food, food, tug, food, 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 tug, food, food, tug, food, 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 tug. Until eventually when, by the time we got to 10 or 15 treats per opportunity to play with the tug, the food became reinforcing and you could use it to shape other behaviors. Um, but generally speaking, I don't like to do that. The only advantage food gives me is I can get, if I have a dog that'll work for it, I can get a lot of repetitions in fast. And the nice thing with most dogs with food, I can give it to them while they're there in position and they can stay in position and I can keep them stable and then start working on duration in that spot. Um, the tug tends to be arousing and really spin dogs up and they, and, and to really get the most out of it, the tug, I don't want a dog that wants to possess the tug. I want a dog that as soon as I play tug with it, I let go, that dog shoves it back at me. Mm. I want the dog to realize the tug is the medium through which he and I have gained together rather than got to possess it, got to own it. No, because then you mm. see these guys who are wind, you know, winding up, um, being posted on somebody's YouTube channel, uh, trying to choke their dog out off of a Kong um, during the dope search or something like that. Someplace where there's like, there's no need for it. You yeah. just don't need to need to get into, into a battle with your dog that way. Now, did you ever get the uh, older guys to come around? Um, yeah, some, some did. Um, and um, I, ironically, one of them, uh, one of that that the, those first two handlers came back. It was my co-sergeant for a few years before he retired during uh, Seattle's Summer of Love. So, <laughs> yeah, he got out too. <laughs> yeah, but um, he, um, yeah, there's some others that that begrudgingly said, you know what, I need to do this. Um, and one guy who um, was first trained in the cemeteries by another trainer, um, and 
you know, 19 week into a 16 week program, the, the, the sergeant <laughs> said, Hey, can you fix this? And we took a month of doing nothing but spray tracks and brought around, but because of the foundation that dog had, he did, he had to do a spray track every night with that dog just to clear his head, but it would became a, it became a ritual for him. And so he's a, he was a convert and he became one of our unit trainers eventually what I, I wasn't there in fact so it was like he had to be a convert like he had no choice like, yeah. yeah well he did the results are what converted him. I, it's just i just happened to be i happened to be the vehicle that got the results that, that helped him get he got the results himself all i did was i don't know let's try this let's try that because i'd never i'd never done this this was in its infancy and we got lucky i'm, I'm gonna say half of my career is dumb luck i stumbled into something and i went if I could do that again, mm-hmm. by accident. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we're kind of doing the S turn stuff. You're fading out food. Um, one of the big questions that I get all the time, and one of my things with this method is, it creates dogs that'll track on anything like gravel, sand, grass, mm-hmm. pavement, mm-hmm. roof tiles. Don't yeah. ask. <laughs> like, I mean, astroturf. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, when and how do you introduce surface changes? So I used to be, um, meticulous, you know, how you spell meticulous, right? A-N-A-L hyphen R-E-G-N-T-I-V. Right. Yeah. That's the way I used to do it. And I, we would, we would get a dog going about 150 yards on one surface on sealed asphalt. And then we would teach them to do the same thing on on concrete. And then we would do it on uh, gravel. gravel. Then we would do it on dirt. Then we would do it on grass. Um, and then it took another trainer um, by the name of Mike Breton out, out here who took my approach and he blended it with what he learned from Ivan Balabanov and started doing circle tracks. And he would do circle tracks that would cross a bunch of different surfaces. It would be on grass. It would hit a con- uh, an asphalt uh, or a, a concrete sidewalk, an asphalt parking lot, a gravel <clears throat> service area back on the grass. And he would just go in a circle and he would, he would sit there and have that dog doing this off lead, just going in circles. And as the dog would go and eat treats, he'd be backfilling behind it. And they just kept going and they do. And I said, this is brilliant. And um, I think if you've seen the article about this method that was in police canine magazine, um, you know, we described the, the circle method and it is the fastest way I've seen to it. And he got what convinced me that I needed to share this with other people and let just let them play with it and not try and take control of how people did it was when I started seeing people do stuff like, oh, I didn't think that would work. And lo and behold, it did. And Mike Breton was one of them. So really, really skilled trainer. He, he's adept at Randy Hare's method for doing dope, dope detection. So I, I went to a, uh, one of the original Invictus Law Dog seminars in Vegas in, I want to say, 2008, I think. Yeah, about that. Um, and I remember someone teaching this uh, this system. I thought it was somebody from uh, like West Covina, California or someplace like that. But they said it exactly like you just did in that order, asphalt concrete gravel dirt grass so i'm wondering if if i have it wrong where it was or if it was you 
They were talking a lot about doing off-leash stuff. Um, I'm checking right now to see what year I did Invictus. Yeah, I did it 2008. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there it is, 2008. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so I remember... Um... Brad Smith was there at that one, and he was from West Covina. So okay. he and I were both there. So maybe there's a conflation because we were both, you know, both um, uh, husky boys that that like to talk our dog stuff. So yeah, I drank a lot of fucking beer. Invictus. Yeah. It was a lot of people drank a lot of beer at that. One. Yeah, but I always remember. I always remember it because they, like I said, they were. It might have been Brad was talking about having um, doing a lot of off leash, having a harness with a, a light yeah, on it. That was That's us. How the, and I, and I and I think, did you guys have a dog go off of a parking garage or something? Yes, Seattle's never lost a dog to suspect action. We have, wow. we've, we've always our operating philosophy has always been the safest arrest you can make is one where you generate compliance. And so we, you know, we've always tried to do that. Um, but when we were working our dogs off lead, um, we've lost one dog to a uh, two dogs to cars and one off of a parking garage fell down and impaled himself on a sprinkler head. Damn. But it's funny because I can't remember where my keys are currently, but I remembered you teaching in the order that you did the, uh, mm-hmm. that you did. Cause if, and I, if I remember right back then, I'm, you even said before you moved from say uh, uh, asphalt to concrete, you could certify that dog on asphalt. Yeah. Is that, did I remember that correctly? Yeah. If it was an all out, yeah. In those days, yeah, you could. Like you could easily get a dog to go, you know, and it's funny because once you get them at 150, 150 yards, they'll do 300 with no problem. It's like they don't even realize the distance is getting longer. It It's kind of weird, but it helps. It really helps when you have articles and they can get pay stations along the way. Um, and I'm going to say, you know, earlier here, you mentioned Dick Stahl. Well, I, I'm going to credit Dick Stahl for planting the seed in my head about teaching the dog to look for tiny little things and back chaining that to become tracking. Mm-hmm. You know, I, like I said, I haven't had an original idea in my life and he gave me that. So what we did is um, we found some parking garages where they had expansion joints and little and plenty of surface defects. And so we would run our spray tracks inside these parking garage when the, when the winter weather is nasty and we would stick roofing nails into the expansion joints. So it's a little spot that the dog can't pick up that's there and you can go ahead and pay the dog at that point. And so you have these dogs doing these, you know, these big parking areas, parking garages, looking for something that is half the size of a dime and um it pays off when you get them out on the street in ways you can't imagine if when you can develop that kind of focus it it changes the game for you so when you you're pretty specific about when you're teaching uh the the food is every four inches do you have a preset standard when you start putting gaps in so uh, the answer is always going to be when the dog tells me it's ready. Everything about our, our whole canine academy, we don't have a canine academy that is structured on week one, we're going to do this, week two, we're going to do that. It's all built around the dog, and the dog will tell you when it's ready for the next thing and the handler too. Um, 
but the dog is usually the biggest determinant of how fast you're going to go. So when a dog is smooth and fluid at four inches and I can get that 20 feet, I'm going to, there's, we have what we call the 80, 20 rule. Um, you can take all the variables in that track. And when the dog is successful at 80%, you can make an improvement. You can make an adjustment of not more than 20%. So if I have a delay of 10 minutes or let's say I have a delay of 10 minutes, I have, um, a length of a hundred feet and my treat spacing is at say six inches and my spray width is at two inches. Dog gets that he's at 90% and it's gotta be all of them. As soon as you have one that's below 90% of, of those, you know, criteria that you're looking for, whether that's, uh, does he actually work the whole length or did he go off and investigate for, a couple minutes and all that stuff. So in other words, time on track and, or did he check out? You've seen those dogs, you were there tracking along and all of a sudden they stop and they go, wow, man, trees. Mm -hmm. There yep. are trees. How cool is that? And then all of a sudden they come back and they go. But when that checkout's there, that's time on task. They got to have, they got to give me 90 to hundred percent time on task. Um, in the developmental stage. And then there's going to be, you know, did they hit all the, did they hit all the treats? I don't care if they eat them all because some of these dogs, when they're really motivated, those treats just become markers and they move on. And then other ones will gobble up everyone, every treat. So, but did they hit them all? And, um, and did they hit all the articles? And, you know, and, and then I use also time and style. What I want is a dog that's not frantic. What I want is that dog that is calmly, clear-headedly moving with focus and purpose and drive to get there, not sitting there yanking around, but like, I am gonna stay on this thing and I'm gonna get there. Once I got that, then we start making adjustments. And the 80-20 rule is, so when I get that 100 yard track with six inch spacing with two inch wide streets and a 10 minute delay, I can change one variable by 20%. I pick one. So this time it's gonna be the length and I'll go from 100 feet to 120 feet. Everything else stays the same. If the dog handles that, I change a different one. I'm going to widen the spray from, from four inches to five inches. That's actually 25, but it's close enough. It's hard with spray to get it precise. And if he handles that, the next time I'm going to change treat spacing, go from six to eight inches. And I'm going to work my way. And I'm trying to not make the gaps too big, trying to keep this, the leaps too big. And I try to change one variable at a time so that when something goes wrong, I know what caused it or I got a better idea that I know what caused it. If I changed two things, was it thing A or thing B that caused the failure or was it the interplay between them? So if I only change one thing at a time, I got a better shot of moving steady, steadily forward. And this avoids that three steps forward, do, 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 two steps back progress, mm -hmm. where I got to take five steps to actually get one step of progress. So I'm a baby steps guy all the way around, baby steps from the beginning. So this is going to sound uh, pretty elementary, but in the beginning, or even till you, till you really start adding the 20%, the person laying the track, mechanically, what does this look like? So you have, they have the jug, they have the food. Uh, do we try to avoid setting the jug down at all while we're putting food? What are they doing with their so feet? People the, are going to have to visually 
in the beginning, south. you're walking and you spray the line first, loop around to the downwind side, come back, drop the treats on the track. And I'll tell you what, here's a pro tip. Save your back, buy yourself a piece of three of, of uh, you know, inch, inch and a half PVC pipe, cut it off at your at the level of your sternum at your xiphoid process mm -hmm. and use that to drop the treats ah. instead of bending it down and killing your back but space them at every four inches along that line and then walk back around it doesn't matter um, nearly as much if you if you put the the spray bottle down you'll see a dog sniff it but it doesn't pay they come back and after a while they learn to ignore it um once you've gone to the distance once you're getting to the point where you've got treats spaced every three or four feet, then it, it's easier to spray the treats and drop them at the same time. So it's you're spraying, dropping treats. And the way I'll do it is I'll walk and I've got my sprayer in one hand and I've got my uh, Ziploc bag with the treats in, in the same hand that's holding the handle of the sprayer. And I've got the wand here. I drop, I'll stop the spray drop a treat and I just literally drop it so that it falls in the V between my feet. I put my heels together, create a V, it drops there. And then I walk on spray a little more slow and cumbersome, but it gets faster, quicker from that point. Um, and how are you stepping? Are you pretty close? To I just pretty much try to make sure that the inside edge of my foot is on the spray. So I, you know, I, or I straddle it pretty close, yeah. you know, and then we work our way up. And once you get going and the sprays wider, you're going to be walking a little. Eventually, we get it to the point where you're literally just walking through mist, where you're holding this thing up because you can control how wide the spray is when it goes down by adjusting the nozzle or by raising and lowering the wand. Mm. And so you can do a lot by keeping it in a spray in a spray and lowering it and getting that tight line that you need when you're doing new dogs. And then keeping it that same nozzle adjustment for a, a more experienced dog by raising the wand higher. And then when you do that, you're literally walking through spray and it's cause it's settling as you're, as you're going. And it, it, it's actually pretty cool. Your, your feet and your legs will be soaked by the time you're done, mm -hmm. but um, it works well for the dogs. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. So now we retired and we are going to try to put this, all your knowledge, all these years of dog knowledge and supervision, everything to work. So I see, when did we start the uh, proactive canine business? Um, well, uh, I changed my name in 2013. It was Ido I canine before that. Um, and actually when I wasn't working dogs and I was just doing animal behavior consultation, it was ABC animal behavior consultation. Uh, but 2013 we shifted and became an LLC with proactive canine and, um, that has been a side business. Uh, when I wasn't actually working in canine, I did civilian consultation too, working with that. But I work with almost any any working dog teams now. So uh, my preference is always, you know, my heart's with law enforcement canine because that's where I've been all my adult life. But um, military, um, I'll work with search and rescue units, um, service dogs. Um, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, I I'm really about working dogs and helping people with working dogs. Um, law enforcement's the the niche where I can probably bring bring the most direct experience to it. So, like when I work with service dogs, people are teaching me about what they do. But my strength there is I can find 
flaws in their mechanics or it, ways that they can smooth out their mechanics and get things better or ways they can track data and improve their training with better record keeping. Do you find that's what your training records are for? Oh yeah. If you, yeah. If you okay. ask, a, if you ask a canine handler, what are your records for? What's the answer they're most likely to give you? To prove that I did the training it to my bosses. <laughs> a lot yeah. Of them. Or to, or to court. Yeah. It's going to be court, for your bosses for sure, or to court. Yeah. Either one. And that's that. And that's the, the worst myth that we perpetuated on, on our career field. Your training records are your best friend. They are your breadcrumbs out of the woods when things go wrong. If you keep good records and you have a problem, you can probably go back two weeks in those records and you'll see where that the genesis of that problem started. Yeah, if yeah, they could. If and you're right, mm -hmm. most guys, it's just Got somebody it. who's gonna put in the uh the pack track record thing today, who's gonna do all that? Because we need to we need to have that, you know, whatever. But it is impactful when you show up to court because the attorneys do not believe they still don't believe the cops keep records. Yeah. And you come in with the uh, Seattle phone book size yep. uh, stack Two of records. Yeah. The funny thing is there's a reason why they don't think that cops keep records because there's a lot of cops that don't keep records. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's, it's a mistake, but looking at your, I was going to ask you this, looking at your website, um, you have, you have your uh, tracking, you have a blog going on there, working dogs and you have family dogs. So my question is, because Ted and I have talked about this a lot. We were a little bit later coming into the, to the pets. Do you feel that you have brought more of your police experience to the pet world or pet experience back into the police world? Um, boy, I can't say whether it's more because you know what? In many ways, in some things, the civilian world is ahead of us. We do a lot of things because our culture has done them a certain way for a long time. Mm -hmm. And it's it it it's there. And we could pay attention because there's some people in the sport world that do stuff that's just absolutely amazing. If we paid attention, we had that kind of dedication, we could do it too. I think one of the things that frustrates me is that um, a lot of canine handlers miss this. And so here's what I brought to the, to the civilian world from police canine. And this is what Tim Teakin, my, um, the trainer after Larry Franklin, who was, Tim was my first real deep mentor, really helped me grow. He said, anytime you're with your dog, one of you is training the other. And if you're not at every minute making the decision to be the trainer, then by default, you're the trainee because the mm. dog has it way easier than you do. They just have to think of how do I make this hairless monkey say good and give me stuff? Whereas we, we have all sorts of stuff to think about. Did I lock the front door? Did I turn off the iron? Who's going to be the next president? Will there be peace in the Middle East? Is this pandemic ever going to end? All of these thoughts intrude in our presence with the dog. And the dogs, they're simple, man. And by the way, if you're not paying off, I'll go entertain myself. I'll find a way you're not going to like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So from the dog's perspective, perspective, there's no such thing as a canine handler. There are only canine trainers and trainees. And that person may have the official title in the department of canine handler, but from the dog's perspective, you damn well had better be a trainer and you'd better take your craft seriously. You 
you there's and I say this because dogs don't have an off switch. Look, I can take my sidearm out of my holster, lay it on a table. And as long as nobody touches it, when I come back to it, it's in the same condition as when I left it there, right? Mm -hmm. But if I leave my dog in a 10 minute sit stay, go around the corner and I don't see what happens, that dog has changed. He's taking in stuff from the environment. He's making decisions about whether he will or will not remain in that stay and how it will affect him. This is the only tool in the police inventory that does that. It's the only tool that requires complete mindfulness for an entire shift. Not even SWAT demands that. Maybe once in a while on a call, you're gonna be on it. This is the most mentally demanding discipline in all of law enforcement. And we better pick the right people and we better pick the right training programs and we better make sure that we do justice to this most powerful tool. There is nothing else that does what a dog does. Does <laughs> don't what a dog does. Yeah. I see the tail wagging behind you. Seriously, <laughs> there's nothing in the police inventory that can track a guy from the local stop and rob five blocks through the city and into somebody's backyard where he's hiding underneath their deck. We haven't got anything else that can do that. Helicopters and floor might see him, but then we've had instances where the helicopter didn't see him, but the dog found him. And we've had instances where the helicopter helped us find him. Don't get me wrong. But the other thing that we've got, and it's the second best thing dogs do, dogs do, because their nose work is where they bring real value that can't be replaced by any other tool. Every other thing they can do when it comes to applying force, we have other tools that can replace them. The only advantage they have as a tool of force is for some people, they're a psychological deterrent. Some people will fight with every cop they see and they'll go, but I don't want nothing to do with that dog. And they will as much as say so. And then there are other, and the other thing about it is, um, it's a sad reality that they're slightly more expendable than a human being. Mm -hmm. I don't believe in throwaway dogs, but as a police supervisor, I would rather console one of my handlers on the loss of his or her dog than go to that person's house and console their spouse on the loss of their law enforcement officer spouse. For me, um, it's a difficult calculus, but that's that's where it boils down. But it's the only other tool that we have in the inventory that can stop. You launch a bullet, it goes until it hits something. You launch, a, you, you shoot a taser, it goes 21 feet no matter what until it hits something. Pepper spray goes wherever that gas cloud goes. All Blue over nose. every other cop around is where that <laughs> yeah. pepper spray Blue nose, yeah. But we've got dogs that can... One scent can be stopped, can be turned back. Oh, and by the way, if that target moves, they can adjust their course. We've got, you know, we've got cases where our dogs have caught suspects running through Chinatown, getting away from an arrest team and jumping up on a car. And this dog weaves in around people and around the arrest team and goes ahead and grabs it. I, you know, I don't get me wrong. There's a place for dogs as a tool of force. But for me, where I get my jollies, where I think it's great, the thing that I love the most is tracking and scent work because nothing replaces it. There's We haven't got another tool that can do that. I can still use, to, you know, look, I'm six foot one. I weigh 225 pounds. They gave me a metal baton that gets longer when I swing it. They gave me pepper spray. They gave me taser. I got a 42 a gun with 42 bullets. And I got a radio to call another 1,200. Well, now it's 900. Well, no, now it's about 700 
ugly mugs like me that that can apply force to somebody. There's nothing a dog could do that we couldn't do bigger, better, faster, harder if we want to. They just have that the advantage of expendability and we can stop them. We can start them and as and their psychological deterrence. But there's nothing that will replace their nose. Nothing. We haven't got any inventory that, that can. No, no, no. And the military has tried, buddy. They yeah. Have spent a lot I was of part money. of a DARPA project on that. We'll oh, talk yeah. about that someday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to get you on for that. So we're looking at, I'm looking at proactive canine.com. It's uh, just what you think proactive letter K number nine.com. Um, you have uh, links to events and things like that. Are you going to be traveling around? Are you teaching at some conferences? Are you doing your own thing? I'm going to be doing, you know, PenVet's going to be virtual next year. So I'm going to be doing something for them on resilience. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, COVID has curtailed travel. So I haven't traveled much and done much traveling since then. Um, I'm open to it. Things I'm thinking things are going to be opening up pretty soon and we're going to have better opportunities to travel. Um, you know, I got, I got my natural immunity the hard way and I'm proud of it. And I, you know, I'm feeling Me pretty too. good. Yeah. And, um, but, uh, one of the things I'm doing right now that I'm absolutely loving is, uh, um, I get together with a group of old timers from the United States police canon association. Um, and we're doing a series of webinars on their YouTube channel that they're being posted right now, but we do them live and then they get posted up on the website. Um, talking about the things that we think are putting uh, that will put police canine on a better footing to deal with our modern operating environment right now law enforcement is under a microscope and um, police canine is in particular um, i'm sure you're familiar with the marshall project oh, yeah. and 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 things like that and whether whether you agree with it or not um, that is a segment of the community is saying, we want this done a different way. And, you know, Washington state, uh, everybody hangs their hat on case law, but Washington state's populace here said, we don't care about case law. We're going to create our own law through the legislature, through popular vote first, and then the legislature that's going to say, this is how we want canine run in this state. Um, and maybe we could have been a little more proactive and, stave that off but i think the end product will be good but in general i think the police canine community across this country needs to be proactive no pun intended about my country I'm, i mean this i, I name this because i i realize that proactive uh, approaches solve problems before they become problems and we need to go ahead and figure out what the lay of the land is and change our approach and tactics accordingly i still love a dog that can do the job all the way around and can handle the biggest and the baddest guys. But in the end, it doesn't matter whether we're right or wrong. We're going to wind up facing, uh, we're going to wind up having to answer to the communities we serve. And so we got to be the best. We got to have, we pick the best people, the best dogs, and we give them the best training and the best equipment. And we make sure they stay on top of their game. And we will, we will come out of this okay. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, so do you have, uh, besides the, the product of canine website, do you have any social media account for it? You know, I'm doing every, you know, I'm on, on Facebook. It's a personal account. They haven't, I got enough numbers in there that pretty soon they're probably going to tell me I have to become a public figure thing. And I may do that, but 
strictly through the website right now. Nice. Uh, now that I'm retired, I'll probably ramp up more in social media, but I'm not looking to drive business. I'm that way. My, my concern is I want to help canine units get better. Mm -hmm. um, I've made mistakes and I can show you where the, where the landmines are in the, in the road if you want, and I can help make things better for you before they become problems for you. And so that's where my, my mission is. I'm going to try and see if I can help canine units stay ahead of the curve. And so they come out of this, when they come gunning for man, they got the records, they've got the, the skills and they've shown their worth that they're valuable. They bring something to the table that can't be replaced. Well, come to this side of the country. Cause I got news for you. We're traveling like mofos over here, buddy. Uh, yeah. I've been on like 150 planes in the last couple of years. So yeah. come on over this way, man. Uh, get, get in with hits, get in with blue line. We need to get your, uh, yeah. Your you know, Joe and I just there. kept missing each other. He was, I, I think I was going to do blue line this year, but it looks like he's got his slate full. So maybe he'll hit me next year, but we, you know, we talk and he'd say, I'll call you tomorrow. And I miss him. And then yeah. I, you know, but I'd love to, I'd love to go ahead and do that. Cause I hear it's a heck of a call. Yeah. There's yeah. always someone that drops out. So make sure you keep yeah. get on his, his reserve list there. Um, probably five, I don't know, 10% of the instructors end up being last minutes because somebody had to drop out. Like I had to drop out last year cause I had COVID real bad. Ted ended up doing by himself, but if he was sick or, or something similar, then we would have had, you know, to replace. There were several people that got replaced. So, I'll stay on Joe too. Um, we've managed to get a few people up through there. So, uh, Ted, what about you? Where are you at? Uh, towards like canine, letter K number nine, towards like pets, uh, on Instagram and Facebook. And then, uh, working underscore dog underscore radio and working dog radio for, um, Facebook. And then HRD police canine on Facebook and on Instagram for all that stuff. And you're still at Van S canine. Yep, Van SK9 on Instagram, Van SK9 Academy on, on um, Facebook. Most of it's on Instagram, the cool stuff. Uh, Ridgeside K9 Ohio is the pet side. If you get on that Facebook, it's it's um, just a whole bunch of pictures of pet dogs. Um, and, uh, yeah, don't forget, uh, workingdogradio.com. We have tons of T-shirts and things oh, on yeah. there. Check it out. We have a lot of good swag on there. But, uh, Steve, man, we're so happy to, to get you on. It's crazy how... As soon as you started talking, I was like, hey, man, I think I sat through this dude's <laughs> class like 100 years ago. So that was pretty awesome. That yeah. was 13 years ago, man. Yeah. Over, yeah and I was just just starting with my second job, second dog. Um, I had my first dog from 05 to 08. And um, she had like 60 or so failed engagements. So um, right when I was, I remember being at uh, that Invictus seminar and I was starting the class with my dog when I got back from that. Willie. Um, yeah, with Willie. And Willie was already working the streets with a guy and he went to a different unit. So I ended up getting Willie and he had 50 apprehensions when I got him and we did another about 75. So we made awesome. up for a uh, lost time, but uh, I was a shit bird tracking handler, buddy. I was <laughs> did all of the things wrong. Um, until I became a trainer and really started working on it. Now, now I really, I'm like you, I really love doing the tracking. Um, but I've never, I did the water stuff just a little bit after your class and everything. And I know I, I just didn't stick with it and um, do it, do it enough. So, but uh, when my assistant trainer, Jordan listens to this, 
he's going to be all jacked up. But he likes. Well, if mm-hmm. anybody wants the particulars, the um, the methods outlined on a set of well, I don't think they're doing DVDs anymore, but you can get digital downloads from Tazerdog. No, okay. No, oh, yeah. T a t a w z e r d o g dot com, and just look for Steve White, and you'll see a couple of things that I've got there. Awesome. Well, again, thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate you you getting us in on your schedule. Congratulations on the retirement, man. There's nothing Thank you. better. There's nothing better. You will be like me. I retired just to work way more, but working for myself has been pretty awesome. So yeah, I've already found that part out, man. I didn't yeah. know I was going to be this busy. <laughs> yeah. My, and I, I left from an agency that's not really in turmoil. So, um, and I still like it. So I appreciate it. What do you mean turmoil? It. it was the summer of love. Yeah. Right. Dude, yeah. Didn't I don't you know who was mayor? loving, but it wasn't you guys. So. <laughs> but anyways thanks guys we will see you guys on the next one thank you thanks guys awesome thanks bye you got your reasons i got my wants still got that feeling but i'm too old to die young now working dog radio was graciously granted permission to use this music by brother deeg be sure to check him out at brotherdeeg.blogspot.com that's spelled brother d-e-g-e blogspot.com be sure to buy him a beer at amazon itunes or cd baby or anywhere you stream your music working duck radio was edited and co-produced by alicia brandt